Today on The Black Goat, we talk about work habits and routines. Where, when, and how do you get work done? And a letter from a first-generation student about straddling an academic career and working-class roots. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullet. Maybe you should tell us about Hugo, Samin. Yeah, well, I was just telling you guys, it's been crazy how much he's changed in the last year. So I got him a year ago, and he was two. Um, and he was, like, so unregulated. Like, he just immediately, if you started, like, playing with him, he would just start chewing on you and just super hyper. Um and now he's like a normal dog and just in a year it's amazing i don't know how much of it is like not being in a shelter anymore and or just getting older or whatever but it's so cool to now have this like sweet dog who'll just come and like lay next to me and all this stuff um and i so like he's been sleeping in a crate every night since i've had him but right now i have a bunch of people staying at my house so i'm sleeping on the couch in the living room and so i thought oh well I'll let him out of his crate and see if he'll like sleep calmly near me and yeah he's like sleeps on the floor then he gets on the bed with me then he goes back to the floor and yeah it's just so cool that like a year ago if i had let him out of his crate while i was sleeping he would have done so much damage and it's it's kind of fun to watch him grow up mm-hmm. it's that's cool i remember when when bear had died and you were thinking about getting another dog and there was this article i think you might have posted it on social media or something about like the joys of like a large lazy dog yeah and, and i remember you were kind of saying like you could really connect with that and then you got mm-hmm. hugo and he was yeah. this like large completely hyper nutso <laughs> dog yeah and i was like oh temperament just yeah. uh, but it's not it sounds like it's not temperament it was yeah. it was age or it was something yeah. i think it yeah. might have been that he basically lived in a shelter his whole life and so when he okay. had this freedom and interactions and all this stuff i think he just couldn't control himself and he you you still see signs of that sometimes if you get him really hyper he can't control himself again but um but yeah it's it's really cool to see him mellow out so much that's cool it's also interesting how different he is than my last dog he's way more well he's way more affectionate and like follows me around and i mean it's kind of known about the breeds like my last dog was a great pyrenees who's more of a guard dog and he's probably part newfoundland and part border collie and so they're more attachy so, like, my last dog was more avoidant like me, and Hugo's more, like, securely attached. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so is that, there is this idea in, in attachment theory about how, like, the, you can be, like, earned secure, like, if you're, if you're avoidant or mm-hmm. preoccupied, but then you're in, like, a stable relationship with a secure person, you become more secure. Is that yeah. happening to you? So <laughs> yeah, are you becoming maybe. more secure? <laughs> that might be, yeah. I are still don't say Hugo I love, love him. No, definitely not. <laughs> I can't do that. I saw um, a dog that I would like to have the other day. It was like a a bulldog of some kind. Um, And it does this thing, which I think there's a term for it. And I think the term is called sploot. Where, have you guys heard this term? Is it the nose thing? No. No. Okay. I could be wrong about the term. But I don't think it's a different term. Dogs lie down and then they like stick their legs out behind them. Oh, yeah. yeah, Like they're like lying on their belly, but their legs are sticking out. Oh, my God. It's the best thing. (laughs) A a bulldog that lies down like that. That's what I want. (laughs) I've never, I didn't know there was a name for that. Me neither. (laughs) Yeah, when they're so silly. Their back paws are like sticking out and so you can see the pads and yeah. 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 
It looks super uncomfortable. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Why do yeah, they do just... that? Is it like is it like a hot day and a cold floor kind of thing? Or I thought it was yeah, a puppy is... thing. Like usually they can do that yeah. when they're young, but then when they get older, that becomes uncomfortable. I thought. But I, don't know. I think that like to me, the thing that's so great about it is that like bulldogs are already so like awkward looking, and then it's such a like an yeah. awkward pose. Yeah, it just yeah. 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 Great combo. Well, should we uh, do our letter? Uh, I, of the I want week? to say one more thing oh, about yes. funny dog things. On Mother's Day, I didn't get my mom anything, but I was like, "Mom, I have this funny video I saw on Twitter. Some of you have probably seen it, like the one where the dog like takes the older dog takes the little puppy off the couch and then gets on the couch instead. Anyway, it's very cute, and my mom loved it so much she watched it like ten times straight, and I was like, "Yes, I won Mother's Day with this <laughs> silly dog video." That another thing. Something that should be a type of video on the internet is videos of people who are not aware of what's on the internet watching cool stuff on the internet <laughs> for the first time. Like I was, my when my parents were here visiting, we were just like somehow we ended up showing them like I don't know pet videos or something, yeah. and they were like so <laughs> delighted. They were like, "This is amazing! These are these videos are hilarious." Yeah. <laughs> but that's probably like I'm sure that's how I reacted the first few times I saw videos like that. Yeah, totally. We've gotten immune we've to yeah we've become the internet is full of great stuff we've become yeah, yeah habituated yeah okay we can move on now <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right so that means we're moving on to our letter is that right yep okay dear the black goat I am a first-generation college student, which makes my experiences as both an undergraduate and a graduate student entirely novel to my family as the years have gone by, I have become increasingly aware of the differences between my roots of where I come from and my career in academia. Despite trying to include my family in my work life and to inform them of the nature, successes, and struggles of the academic life throughout my last six years of graduate school, I still find that my family treats my career with a lack of respect. They often consider the academic life as though it is not really work. They talk down to me about my research and psychology more generally. And I receive unending and distinctly uninformed career advice about how to get an academic job. I want to be able to share my work with my family because I love what I do and it is such a large part of my life. However, it is difficult when they are unwilling to take my word for what graduate school and the academic life is like. How do I navigate these discrepancies between my family background and my current life as an academic? Are there ways that are not insulting or condescending to get my family to understand my career as an academic? Sincerely, fraught with first gen feels um so that's the letter and then um sanjay you have a an informant report yeah that's not what i mean <laughs> no yeah so i think when we got this letter it, it seemed like a really important letter to to discuss on the episode and and we kind of talked about like it would be good to get somebody with expertise and experience and so I talked to my friend Jill Harrison. Jill is a sociology professor here at the U of O. Um, and she both, uh, this is both relevant because she comes from a similar background. She's from a working class family in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, and it's part of her research that she, she uh, does, uh, you know, working class studies is kind of one of her areas. A lot of, she does a lot of field work um, with, with working class communities. And so, um, so, so I, I was really curious what Jill would have to say uh, about this, and and I think one one of the things that struck me is, you know, I think Jill 
really resonated with this and and said that she's gone through and still goes through a lot of that so she's somebody who like she's got tenure she's got a book she's very successful by all the academic markers and and yet you know she's still sort of experiencing this this tension but so one thing that she said she she recommends a book uh by alfred lebrano called limbo blue collar roots white collar dreams and it's a uh, hundred uh, about uh, interviews and and stories of about a hundred people who um, who've made this transition one way or another from kind of a working class background to to blue collar uh, or sorry to, to to white collar jobs whether it's academia or other sorts of things. Um, one of the things she mentions uh, <clears throat> she quotes one of the interviewees who says. Uh, it sears your soul to finally decide to talk like your teacher and not like your father. I'm not talking about anything less than the grammar of the heart. So Jill kind of, she said this quote really resonated with mm-hmm. her and, and she describes, she says it's about, you know, part of the, the difficulty is about owning, to quote from Jill's response, owning who you are and where you are, where you now are and where you're going in a way that accepts the great distance between you and the closest people in your life. I think there's a lot of grief in this because it means that fears have been realized. That is their fear and your fear that you would become a different person if you got an education and enter a world of white collar values that they don't have access to. You are different now in ways that they don't and can't understand. And <clears throat> you know this this I think the you know from from Joel's perspective this idea that you know part of the challenge is accepting it um you know, and, and Jill describes, you know, herself struggling with the same tension that our letter writer describes and, and sort of uh, trying not to draw attention when she's with family and says, um, you know, I feel like I, uh, I feel like by not fully owning it, I keep this world I'm in and who I am kind of mystified to them. And this fosters that suspicion and disrespect of my occupation. Much of uh, what I witness, and she talks about some stuff that <laughs> happens on Facebook, and you know, perhaps at worst, it plays into this notion that I think I'm better than they are, which is very, very the last thing I want to convey to them. Um, so hopefully, it's it's helpful. I think it's good for people in this position to realize that even very successful people who've gone through the same transition experience that. And I think it's also good for people who haven't had this background to understand just how big of a fucking deal this is. Um, so mm-hmm. what Jill says specifically, she says, I've, I've joined the Working Class Studies Association. This is the name of a, a, um, a professional society where many of us straddlers are and gather. There's a first gen group that I started here at the U of O uh, or that, that's just started at the U of O that I've signed on to. I've incorporated the study of working class folks into my research and teaching. And perhaps most significant at all, I signal my working class background to all of my students in all of my classes beginning on day one because I know that there are many others like me out there and I want them to know that they aren't alone and that I see them. So I think Jill's response is really helpful. I, I hope it's helpful to people listening that are in this situation. I think it's also one of the things, I mean, I've known from talking to Jill in the past, but one of, one of the things that really stood out to me about her response is just how big of a deal this is um, for, for students coming from this background, that there's this real identity disconnect. Um, uh, and yeah, like she, I think the, you know, the letter writer's question of like, how do I make my family, you know, understand or not make my family, but how do I try to get my family to understand? I think to some extent, um, uh, you know, what some of what has to be done is uh, at least, or what might have to be done based on what Jill's describing sounds like it's, it might be more about building other, like not 
not sep- not letting this create more of a gulf between your family, but sort of coming to accept that uh, things have changed. I think that's one of the themes in, in Jill's response. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. What do what you guys think when you saw this letter, and what do you what do you think of? Yeah, it reminds me of like people I know in similar situations, and just when I get to know them better and learn more about what their life is like, and hearing about how what they don't get from their family of origin and like it makes me really really grateful from what i for what i do get but also yeah just like that's just another disadvantage and there's a variety of reasons why people might be in a position where their family of origin doesn't get what they do and that might come across sometimes as a lack of respect for what they do and things like that which i just think that would be so hard and it's not something we talk about very much about the the privilege of having parents and family members who ask about your work and are curious and understand it or maybe even can give you help and advice in some extreme cases um mm-hmm. but yeah it's like even just having them even if it's pretending to be interested is already such an advantage over some people who don't even have that um yeah mm-hmm. i think it's something we should talk about more yeah when i first read the the letter um my my parents both went to um went to college and you know they don't they don't have academic jobs but they don't have jobs that are dramatically different from from mine so I thought like that I wouldn't have I wouldn't be able to sort of like relate to the um experience of the letter writer um and then as I was reading through um Jill's comments I like some of what Jill wrote like resonated to me on like a like a very deep level actually and I think for me it's not a professional difference it's like there are other ways in which I feel quite different from my family and that like you know there are ways that I have sort of like departed from them like things that are familiar to them that um I have some of the sim like some similar feelings of like worrying that they'll feel like I think that I'm like better than them or like that they'll feel like um, we can't relate to each other anymore or something like that. Like, um, part of it is just like generational, I think. And part of it is moving to the U S and like living in a very different place and stuff like that. Um, and I do think that that feeling of like, uh, worrying that like you're distancing yourself from your family and wanting to be, you know, wanting to be who you really are while also like wanting to be familiar to your family is a pretty tough tension to experience sometimes. Um, So I thought this was a really interesting letter and Jill's comments are really, really helpful. Yeah. And I I think there's a, there's a way in which, you know, first generation students are not as, as visible, you know, that's a a way of being different. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of disconnect between like, you, you know, you've got this, you know, in the case of our letter writer and in the case that Jill described, you know, this sense of sort of disconnection or tension or, or being different from your family. And then you also feel disconnected from the people around you in your present situation. And mm-hmm. so it's this kind of like double whammy and, and you know, neither, you know, neither direction really understands the other because, you know, at a university you're you're invisible. I mean, I think that that's why you know for for jill talking about like making herself visible in her teaching um and i know that she's had the experience of students coming to her as a direct consequence of that Mm -hmm. and i think that's been 
of great benefit to her students. I think that's also probably been a benefit to her to feel like, you know, um, like you realize you're not the only one because there are other people been through what you're going through or who are going through it at the same time as you. Yeah, I think it's really good for the rest of us to gain more awareness about these things. I think, like, I remember I was just having a conversation with someone about a grad student who's going to a conference and traveling internationally for the first time, and I was remembering, like, being a mentor to a grad student in a similar situation, and, like, the things you don't think about for someone who may never have even gotten on a plane before or much less, you know, flown internationally, and then, like, the idea of, Mm -hmm. like, getting landing in another country and having to figure out how to get somewhere and what if the worst case happens well for me if the worst case happens I throw money at the problem for Mm -hmm. a grad student who doesn't have a safety net that's not a realistic option so like the rest of us I think could also help by not taking those things for granted and being aware that there are people for whom a lot of academic experiences that are necessary in academia are going to be extremely unfamiliar and they might be afraid to ask the questions they need to ask if, mm-hmm. if everyone else mm-hmm. is acting like this is completely familiar and everyone should know how to do this. Yeah, it's almost like a, I don't know if you'd call it like a reverse Dunning-Kruger or something <laughs> that like for the, the people that have the privileged background, it's like Dunning-Kruger, you don't know what you don't know. And this is almost like you don't know what you do know. Mm-hmm. Like you, you assume that people know, you know, students know that they can get certain kinds of help or that they can ask for certain exceptions. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is something that I've done in my teaching is to try to be more explicit about like exceptions and policies and things like that, because, you know, I don't want students who, uh, you know, students who have advantaged backgrounds will, will just know because someone told them, oh yeah, yeah, your prof said that, but you can ask for an extension or you can do whatever. So like, put an extension policy on your syllabus or things like that even a lot of these small things and I think that can contribute to to the sense of like disconnection within academia is people feeling like look everybody around me has this knowledge people talk about like the hidden curriculum right mm-hmm. like people mm-hmm. people know all this stuff that that I I don't know and I so I feel even worse about things because of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, and, and recognizing that, yeah, like I, you know, I'm kind of similar to you, Alexa, like my parents, you know, they, in some, there's some level in which, yeah, they don't understand what it's like to be an academic, but they, you know, they, they, they both went to college and, and it's just, it's a different sort. And they, even when they don't understand, they respect, they, they understand yeah. in a general sense what academia is about. And they, yeah. and I, I don't, I don't know that it's the case that like I don't, the letter writer or Jill that people disrespect, but I think there's a level of not. There, there's a level of sort of difference in understanding that's that's um, well really one thing feels like it runs deeper yeah one thing the letter writer wrote about that kind of breaks my heart is like her family not believing her about what yeah. uh, academic life is like or what the job market is like yeah. and stuff like that and like yeah. my parents don't know what my life is like but it's I'm so grateful like the other day my mom texted me and said do you have any news about the editorship you applied for and I'm like she's trying so hard I mean yeah. in that case she got it like that was exactly what was on my mind and she asked exactly the right question but even if it had been totally off base like I just it's it's one of the ways in which you can show people that you love them and in which you can feel loved and so it's heartbreaking to me that there are a lot of people who don't have that um yeah it's mm-hmm. not even about getting it but about like feeling like it's a close enough thing that you can even try to ask questions. I think like when the gulf is too big that that both sides feel like they can't even ask questions or they don't even know where to start or it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's really alienating probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's where, 
yeah the the having people other people that can make up for that part so of course you still have connections to your family that are important to you but if if that's not a thing that you can get from your family then then finding other ways to get that validation yeah seem seem important and and for other people realizing that amongst us are are people who don't have that Mm -hmm. sort of easy support that that some of us do yeah Yeah. cool well uh thank you to very much to our letter writer fraught with first gen feels as they sign themselves um and yeah if you're listening and you would like to send us a letter to read on a future episode you can email us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com we really appreciate uh um when people have things for us to read on an episode like we just did or just feedback or thoughts or ideas about the podcast we love hearing from people um you can tweet at us at black goat pod we're on facebook facebook.com slash black goat pod we're on instagram instagram.com slash black goat pod and you can find us on itunes and stitcher you can rate us on those services that helps people find us um and yeah thank you listeners Mm -hmm. so for our main topic we thought it would be fun to talk about work habits and work routines and and how we get work done and so i mean you had kind of a a a sort of an an interaction that kind of put this on your radar you want to tell us about that yeah i was talking to a grad student from germany and she's visiting and she was talking about how it was surprising to her that we work from coffee shops so much Mm -hmm. in my research group and and my colleagues and the grad students around me um and uh, yeah it reminded me actually of i have a collaborator in the netherlands and i went to visit him and we were going to work together and so we were going to his office to work every day and i just can't work in such a quiet like i don't know professional environment i it's just i don't know it's too hard for me so after a few days i was like what if we went to a coffee shop and worked so i went to a coffee shop and we got there and he was like hold on i should email like the secretary of my department to tell them that I'm at the coffee shop and not in my office. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, he was like, well, I guess I don't have to, but it, but like, I probably, it wow. would be like the nice thing to do. And I was just like, oh my God, like I, oh, I would have such a hard time with a job where even if he doesn't have to, where like the norm is that you're supposed to be in your office most of the time. And if you're not, you should account for where you are. Or, mm-hmm. I don't know. So it made me think about, yeah, like different work habits. Someone else in the conversation was saying she can only work from her office because she has like large, a large monitor and blah, blah. blah, So she can't work from anywhere else. Um, So yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's kind of a self-knowledge question too, like figuring out what works for you, figuring out what time of day you're most productive and how to block off that time and where to work. And yeah, all those things I think are really fascinating. I think it'd be interesting to talk about how we learn those things about ourselves if we have learned them <laughs> or yeah. like ways, like I, I know other people who have really interesting approaches to this that are really different from mine. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd be curious to hear about like different approaches we take or people we know take um, and what works. Yeah. Um, I have very different approaches. Like right now it's the summer for me. Um, and the, although I am teaching right now, um, so I, I have different like routines in the summer than I do during the school year. Um, and I think, so I'm probably pretty different than you, Samine. So I remember like when I started graduate school, I basically like didn't really have a routine and because graduate school was so flexible, um, I'm probably like contributing to the like stereotypes about graduate students that like our letter writer is now suffering from, but like 
yeah, I would like work when I had time. And then if like people wanted to do social stuff, I would do that. And I didn't have a very structured um, like work routine. And eventually I got to the point where it was too, I wasn't productive enough. And also it was too stressful. Like it was like always I could be working. Um, and I started to work on like a much more sort of like nine to five schedule. Um, and like during the school year here now, that's basically what I do. Um, although I get in probably a little bit earlier than that. Um, but yeah, I come to my office, um, and like work like a work day, um, most days during the regular year, except I spend, um, often I'll spend like Friday mornings or something like that working at a coffee shop with my grad students. Um, and partly it's because I really like working in my office. Like it's like, it, it's like really quiet and like I can, you know, have as much coffee as I want. And, um, I don't know, have like my, all my stuff is here. Like it's, I, I like it a lot. Um, and also like, I like having times that are devoted to work and times that are not. Um, so I don't do like a lot of work from home. And then on the weekends, I might work at a coffee shop and that now, like during the summer, it's like a different story. I work from coffee shops all the time. And like, um, I'm just like a little bit less structured about, mm-hmm. about things. Yeah. I find that, uh, in terms of the location between home office and oh coffee my God, shop, home. With, for me, whichever one I've been working the least in lately seems to be the one. It's like I just need change. I need a change of routine. Mm-hmm. I need a change of scenery. And so, although home, home is a little different, um, home and especially now, you know, uh, my my in terms of time, like when and what lengths and everything. I was similar to you, Lex, in grad school, where like the grad school culture was like there was a there was a bunch of night owls who would work all night long, and there were different people. At, and, you know, it was just kind of you work whenever, wherever. And for me, the shift was becoming a parent, um, and you know, making a decision one that I was going to be involved in my kid's life and and that that was a priority and then sort of two and in, in that over and above kind of like uh um being there for specific expectations just realizing like being around at home when he was around was important um and in fact you know honestly it's more important to me now than my job like (laughs) I Mm -hmm. you know and this is something this is and I think this is often taken as like you either care about your family or you care about your work and I was really lucky that my postdoc mentor James Gross he is one of the hardest workers I've ever witnessed he works hours that for me the number of hours for me would be unsustainable um uh you know he's but Something that he always did, he, he had a family when I was doing my postdoc, still does, obviously, is that he would, you know, he had specific times when he was going to be home for his kids. And if we were having a meeting and it hit, you know, that time when he needs to leave to commute home to be there when his kids get home from, from you know, being being in childcare or, you know, whatever it was, mm-hmm. we were done. And there mm-hmm. was, there was like no compromise. <laughs> it was like, it, it, not in a, like in a really admirable way. It was like, okay, we're done. I got to get home. I got to be there for my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just built that into his routine. And so um, that, you know, he was an example of someone who really sort of, I saw like 
you know, he was incredibly productive at work, but his family was also important, incredibly important to him. And, and so, so I, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've sort of taken at least some of that to heart. I, I, you know, don't work the, the ungodly hours, but I'm like, yeah, time with family is really important to be protected. And, and what that's had the side effect of, I've become more of a nine to five person. Um, it's difficult sometimes. I do work on weekends sometimes and, and nights sometimes for sure. But, uh, um, you know, trying like it's just yeah, it's be, it's become a really important thing to say. Like, and I, I don't think you have to have kids to do that. I think you can you can say whatever it is that's not your your academic work, whether it's leisure time, whether it's friends, whether it's other important relationships, whatever it is. Yeah, you can you can decide, and and some people can f- slot that in more flexibly. Some don't. Well, but yeah, I think having kids makes a really big difference. So actually, I feel like I'm the person who wants to be able to hang out with you and people like you who have kids. <laughs> and so my approach to balancing work and my social life, which is a lot of my social life is with people who have kids or other obligations, is that I'm not going to have a routine. So then I'm mm-hmm. like super flexible. If like one of my friends happens to be available for lunch, unless I have a meeting that was pre-established, I'll work around that and like take a few hours off from work to spend time with them. And so I feel like it works really well if one of the parties mm-hmm. can be like that, or if you're on the same routine. So like parents ha- who have nine to five jobs and know that they can hang out with other, their adult friends at certain times or whatever. I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's really different ways to achieve the same goal of like making sure there's enough of a priority placed on your non-work interests and, and activities, but it doesn't have to be a routine, right? A routine is one way yeah. to achieve that. And another way to achieve that, yeah, or I've, what's worked for me is the opposite of a routine is like to be mm-hmm. really, really flexible. And I can afford to do that because I have so few non-flexible demands on my time that basically I can drop things for social opportunities that come up and make that up in the evening or on the weekend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the core idea is prioritizing. And then yeah. if routine is a means to that end, yeah. then which it, it is, you know, which is how I was describing it, then that's important. But if you mm-hmm. can, like in your case, I mean, you're, you're still prioritizing, yeah. you know, spending time with people, but your, your means is different. It's through flexibility rather than routine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I find really interesting is that some people like Alexa, you're saying you like working in your office because it's so quiet and like, I cannot work in a quiet place. And one thing I've noticed is that I need people around so that I can ignore them. But like, (laughs) so like my ideal working environment is at a coffee shop where other people I know are also working at the coffee shop. Another one that works really well for me is when I go visit my mom, she likes to sit in the living room with like the radio on and playing iPad, playing a solitaire on her iPad. And so I'll sit in the same room with her. The radio's on. She's there, but we're not talking. And Mm -hmm. that works really well for me. Yeah. um, Which is a weird I like that too. So like, um, yeah, there are definitely like times when I like the busyness of working in a coffee shop and so I'm a huge baby about working at night um I rarely work at night I feel like my brain doesn't work very well I also feel sorry for myself um and so like if I do have to work at night I'll work at coffee shops because like I feel like there are like also other people around who are working Mm -hmm. um but if I were like at my office or at home um I would I would feel sorry for myself and not be productive I think yeah um yeah so and like there are times when I want to be it depends on the kind of work I'm doing too so there are types of work that I like doing in my office and then types that I would rather do at a coffee shop 
-hmm. I'm extremely bad. I guess this is true of everyone, right? Extremely bad at multitasking of any kind. So like, I can't even listen to music and work. Yeah, this is why I need to be able to ignore the people around me. Like, I can't work at a coffee shop and like, actually carry on much of a conversation with the yeah. people I'm with and like sometimes I'll just zone out completely and even if they're like they leave and I don't notice or they you know like things like that and mm-hmm. that needs to be okay like my my co-working friends seem to be either the same way or totally fine with that mm-hmm. so I feel like my like I have never nailed on a routine that works and I feel like my history is like just like littered with half-ass attempts at things that other people have said have worked and then in some cases have worked for me but I just haven't stuck with them right Mm so one of those things last term I think uh uh, kind of around finals week um several of the students in my lab and I like met every day for a week at a different coffee shop around town to write together and we Mm -hmm. said we're just going to do an hour I think it was an hour like we we were we're only going to commit to being there for an hour um, so it doesn't feel arduous or whatever, and we're gonna try to. And it was great. It was kind of what you're describing, Samin, where like we were there, we'd we'd sort of get together, we'd chit chat a little bit, um, and then we'd get down to work. And it, uh, you know, and I don't know like how much of it was like Hawthorne effect novelty kind of thing. If if we had stuck with it for a while, um, I do know that several of the labs here at U of O are now adopting something called Lab Scrum. And uh, so it's something that Lisa May, uh, who, who's a, um, uh, she's a postdoc in Elliot Berkman's lab here, she kind of adapted from the agile software development system. And so it's this way of sort of organizing group and teamwork and she's adapting it to academic labs. And so one big part of what, what that involves is like co-location. So people work in sort of a common space um, and uh, and there are like stand-ups in the morning and and things like that. When I first heard about this, I thought it sounded like the worst thing in the world. Like not not in an objective sense, but personally for me, I was like that just makes me anxious to think about like being that organized. But the mm-hmm. um, uh, the grad students who are in that lab love it, and now a bunch of other labs here have adopted it, and they wrote up a preprint recently, which I can throw into the show notes. Um, uh, about sort of how this system works, but it, it has a lot of sort of these elements of like working together and, and you sort of define goals for like a two week stretch and and, um, and it's meant to be supportive rather than like punitive or looking over your shoulder and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know, have you, when do you guys, in terms of your time management, like how much do you, have you tried like coordinating with other people? Um, you know, to, to be productive, like writing with other people or things like that? Um, I do this thing where I work with my grad students um, like once a week. Um, we don't have like a specific task that we're working on. We just like are in the same space working together. Um, it's, and it's sort of like a time where we can like check in with each other on stuff that we're both working on. And then I think it also like yeah, I don't know, encourages all of us to work. And I used to do that. And that's actually the advice that I give to grad students who are hoping to be more productive um, or looking for ways to do it. That was what I did when I was like, you know, in my last year of grad school and trying to write my dissertation and stuff like that was like, um, I found a friend who was like as committed to working as I was. And we made like a schedule together where we would go and 
um, work at the same time and be accountable to each other. I think that like works really well. Um, yeah, but now like I don't feel like I need that as much. And then mostly like with my graduate students, it's more like a, you know, a way to be sort of like closer and keep, yeah. be more in touch and stuff. In grad school, I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I was in grad school, some other grad students and I um, came up with this pact that we were late in grad Mm -hmm. school. So we had like data and stuff that we'd been sitting on or even drafts of papers we'd been sitting on. And so we decided we had to submit a paper every month and we were accountable to each other. Um, And it only works if you have like a lot of data you're sitting on or a lot of like half finished papers and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was like, you know, maybe a year before we went on the job market. So like the critical time to get stuff out. Um, and it worked for like three or four months or so. And those ended up being, you know, a huge chunk of what I had on my CV when I went on the job mm-hmm. market. Hopefully I would have written some of them anyway, but that pact and that accountability really helped. Yeah. Um, but now, yeah, now I don't do that so much anymore. It's more now it's like my grad students might like schedule a co-working time with me if they're like, you really need to read this draft. I'll sit down next to you and work on something yeah. else while you do that. That occasionally comes to that. I try not to let it get that bad. Um, but one thing, I mean, this might be obvious, but one thing I find helpful, but also really, really hard is to protect larger chunks of time. Like if I only have an hour between meetings or something like that, I'm going to use that as an excuse not to do real work. Like I might reply to a few emails, but I might also just come hang out with my dog or something. Um, so I've been trying to like put all the meetings on the same couple of days and then reserve like at least three hour stretches where I don't have other obligations where I can work on things that where I really have to like I can't just dip in and out yeah. but I find it so hard like I'll like plan chunks of time but then if there's like if it's at all inconvenient for someone else if I protect that time then I'll give it up like if I'm part of a three-person group and they want to meet at that time but they could meet another time but it's kind of inconvenient or whatever like one thing I've never been good at is just saying no I'm actually committed to doing something else during that time because if my commitment uh-huh. is only with myself it doesn't feel real but I dated a guy who his mornings I mean he was a philosopher so it was he wrote they write books and so it was more important yeah. that you have like really long stretches of time so he just didn't meet with people before noon and mm-hmm. he considered that as inflexible of a commitment as like teaching or anything else which is true mm-hmm. like writing a book is a huge part of his job he has to do it um but I always had a hard time doing that so I'm curious if you guys have any good solutions or know of other people who have good solutions for like how to not let meetings break up all your days all the time or how to protect larger chunks of time for deeper work. I, I'm like you, Samin. I, and actually this term, I've done this a couple of times. This term, I like at the start of the term, I put in like blocks of time in my schedule that said writing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just fucking steamrolled over them anytime mm-hmm. somebody needed a meeting. And I, I could not get into the mindset of like refusing. Because yeah, it's like, someone needs to have a committee meeting and you know whatever i i just so i i feel like i'm i don't know like people people who listen to this podcast who are like tuning in for for actual useful <laughs> advice like I'll, i'm happy to be the warning of like what not to do like i i struggle with this so fucking much uh yeah so i don't i people i i've heard the same things that, that you described to me and people who do do it you know are and i don't know if it's like correlation or causation right because maybe the people that are just good at writing anyway are also good at saying no to things but uh um i i struggle with that so much Mm -hmm. Uh, do you alexa do you like block out in advance protected time or do you kind of how do you deal with that i think i'm pretty similar to both of you 
Um, I think generally one thing that happens to work out, not because I'm good at saying no to things, is that like I think I like to work earlier than most people that I work with and also than my friends. And so like I usually have like a few hours in the morning where nobody really wants to meet with me or um, yeah, my friends like, yeah, don't, they're like, no one has sent me a text message yet. And then like, that's, um, that's a time where I feel like I can get stuff done, but it's not because I'm good at protecting it. It's because it just happens to not align with other people's schedules. Um, and for a while I was, for a while I was getting up really early. Um, or at least what I think is really early. Um, I would go to the I would go to gym classes at 5.45 and then go to work. And then, like, that was... I really like that time of day. I feel like I'm, like, on top of stuff and, like, nobody is there yet and it feels very, like, peaceful and I feel productive. But the problem with that is that, like, then I need to go to bed at 9 o'clock and, like, I'm not really... I don't know. That sort of messes with my, my social life. <laughs> yeah. Maybe... Um by making appointments to write with other people, then it is a commitment to someone else. And so that might make it easier to say no. Like I really can't do a meeting at that time. That's a good point. Yeah. Or like planning to go write. Like sometimes very rarely, but I've done this thing where I'll go write at a coffee shop in Sacramento, which is like a 20, 25 minute drive away. Or if I go, if I'm at my mom's for the weekend, then people can't ask for meetings with me. Um, Yeah. So there might be ways where it's not just up to me or it's not like, just my willpower to resist caving and accepting the meeting. How do you guys um, handle working when you're traveling or like visiting home or whatever? Do you do work in those situations? And like, so like when I visit my family, for instance, I, I think I change what I do every time. Usually I want to get some work done while I'm at home but also it feels harder to do it. And I feel like I'm compromising time with them, blah, blah, blah. Um, with my mom, it's easier because she lives driving distance away. So I can see her pretty often. So I don't feel bad. I'll tell her like, I'll come for a three day weekend, but like Saturday I have to work up until three or something like that. And she mm-hmm. goes to the YMCA every weekend morning anyway. So I know I have that time. I um, went to the YMCA with your mom. Uh, that's true. Yeah, she tries to, to get me. You're the daughter she she always wanted. Yeah, right. <laughs> your um, mom at Zumba is like a very, very uplifting thing to see. That's crazy because that's not her personality outside of Zumba. Um, yeah. yeah, it was very surprising to me. Yeah. And with traveling. So my I, I have this mentality of like either it's a work day or it's not a work day. So when I'm mm-hmm. traveling, if I, I'm traveling long enough and have enough gaps in my schedule that I can set aside an entire day to work then I work when I'm traveling but if it would have to be worked in around other things and like you know I have I have a two-hour break here or there I'm not going to get any real work done during that time so I often end up not doing any any work that's not related to the travel like writing or things like that when I'm traveling which Mm -hmm. is a problem um yeah I have this like mentality like things are very black and white for me like either like I have it's either a meeting day or not a meeting day, or it's either a socializing day or not. A, like I can't quite do a little bit of everything or a little bit of even two things in one day, except if the socializing is like after four or 5 PM, then I can do, it can be both a work day and a socializing day. But if I have like meetings or social events or things like that, breaking up my daytime hours, then that day is completely shot. There's no way I'm getting real work done. Mm-hmm. I'm really bad at like doing a little bit of each. 
Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, my sort of travel is kind of in three bins. So there's like visiting family travel. And there it's usually, if it's a longer trip, then I'll try to work in some like, you know, some afternoons or some days or whatever. Um, if it's a shorter trip than not, then there's the like vacation bin where I try really, you know, where it's, mm-hmm. I try really hard not to have work to do or to bring with me. And then there's the like work related travel bin. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I find like the airplane sometimes is great for getting work done because like the Wi-Fi is too expensive. So I don't <laughs> pay for Wi-Fi, so I can't fuck around. And if, if I haven't had to get up at like 3 a.m. to catch a flight, in which case I'm exhausted, but if it's like been a more reasonable hour, then like if I have things, whether it's writing or reviews or things like that, I, you know, it's the break, it's like this nice like break in routine, um, sort of white noise of the airplane and the people on the plane. Um, no distractions from having the internet. It, like some, sometimes those end up being really sort of productive times. Um, and I, you know, I found that like at conferences and that, I mean, if I'm at a conference and I'm busy all day with the conference, it's one thing, but it, in sort of like, sometimes there's like, you get there half a day early or have a half a day at the end. Those are also sometimes really productive times for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love being in a, in a different city like when I'm traveling and if I do have like a whole day or most of a day where I can just explore coffee shops and like coffee shop hop in a different city I love that and I can be super productive in that setting like I think it's the novelty thing like Mm -hmm. you were talking about Sanjay like of going to a different coffee shop every day although in Davis I always go to the same one and I love that because like they know me super well and it feels like familiar and yeah it's nice so have you guys tried any like any of these like systems for sort of managing your time. So I'm thinking like one of the smaller ones is like the Pomodoro technique. And then there's like the getting things done uh, that was popular a few years ago. And there's a few others like that. Have you guys ever tried any of those? No. <laughs> yeah, I tried, um, I, tr- I tried Pomodoro and it actually worked. And then I kind of stopped doing it. This is <laughs> making me realize I should try the Pomodoro thing again. Um, because uh, that was working when I was doing it, uh, um, and it's a that's a really easy one to do because it's just all all it is is like you break work into twenty five minute chunks and you just commit to like for twenty five minutes I'm only going to do this one thing, um, and so it doesn't feel overwhelming mm-hmm. to be like I need seventeen hours or whatever. But getting things done, I people were raving about that some years ago, and I looked at it. And I was like, "Oh, this looks way too much for me." Um, <laughs> I think setting very low expectations is really important. Yeah, like I have to trick myself into thinking it's okay if all I get done today is like write a paragraph or something, and then then it feels less daunting, and I can start. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was part of the you know with my lab like the. Part of the the doing the writing together was social, and part of it was like setting like one hour is actually quite a bit of time, but setting a one hour commitment to be together. And then I tried really hard to enforce like after the one hour, it's like some days I would get up and leave after one hour, and if I was on a roll, I'd be like, you guys do not feel like you have to stay like for you know to impress me or to to impress anybody else. Like that that's another thing that people again, I'm I'm the worst person as an exemplar of this, but what a lot of people who are productive say is like doing a little bit on a regular basis rather than saving up for the big long marathons or whatever is, Mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, if you write, 
half an hour to an hour a day, you'll get a lot done. I, I have not, yeah. That I've sounds not been crazy successful in to doing me. that. I would never be able to do that. I like mm. the days where I have like, let's say I have the whole day free. Sometimes that happens and I'll, I'll only work like six hours and it'll do like a three hour chunk in the morning, a three hour chunk in the afternoon. I'm so productive on those days. I can't imagine that 12 half hour chunks could possibly be as productive. It's fascinating that, I mean, I'm, I must be wrong because obviously it works for some people. Well, this is so this is another thing that's hard about a lot of this advice is people will say people make causal claims, but you don't know, like it could be that if, you know, for the, you know, for 65 percent of people, small chunks works and for 35, it doesn't, then it seems like, oh, this is the way to do it. But it's actually like, no, for the people that are for the people that are talking the most it's what works for them. But for you, it doesn't. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I struggle with this all the time that like people who have regular writing routines talk about morning. I mean, Alexa, you were mentioning morning works for you. And that's great. Mm-hmm. Like I I will. It's like I, I will keep making the same mistake over and over again of like scheduling time for focused work first thing in the morning and then realizing that my brain hasn't turned on yet and that my own biorhythm is like actually a different time of day would have been better to protect for the focus work if I'm able to protect it, which I'm bad at. But you know what I mean? Like you sort of like, I think some of these productivity hacks are, you know, uh, um, they're correlated. They, maybe they're correlated with productivity or maybe they're correlated with being vocal about productivity, but they're not necessarily what's going to work for you. And that's one of the challenges is like just figuring out like, okay, yeah, people say, work in small chunks, but that doesn't work for Samin. Or people say work in the morning when your head is still uncluttered and you're not worried about things, but that doesn't yeah, work for me, know. you know? I think one reason Do- it doesn't work for West Coast people is that when we wake up in the morning, there's like 18 million emails in our inbox. We're not, yeah. not cluttered in the morning. Maybe if we were in Europe or something, we would wake up in the morning and our inbox would be blank, but... Yeah. I was actually just going to ask, like, do you guys do things to... Um, like, what kinds of things distract you from work and do you do things to... Um, like eliminate them or do you do things to ignore them so the only things that I can think of that I do are I'm pretty bad about this but occasionally I'll like um, like put my phone away or something like that and then so that I'm like not distracted by my phone and then sometimes I'll like also like close my email and stuff like that so I don't see new emails coming in um, and I think that the nice thing about that is that like I do think it's really disruptive I'm like easily distracted by like an email or text or whatever and I'll like respond to it and I'm pretty sure it makes me less productive overall um but then also as a consequence I think like me saying okay I'll respond to that email later makes me like worse than average at email Hmm. I have the this is an interesting individual difference so for me if I didn't take breaks like literally every three minutes to like check email check twitter whatever i would be less productive i think like i've never even tried it has no appeal to me it like it's a refueling thing for me like i was doing a task today where like the person who asked me to do it said can you please time yourself so i know how long it takes and i still couldn't like not it was like a five minute (laughs) task and i still couldn't not like check twitter and like something or whatever and like for me it like re-energizes me even just a 10 second break like that so the thought of like putting all that away then I would hate work and I would never be willing to get started. So for me, the bigger problem is not getting distracted once I'm started. Once I'm started, I'm going to keep working until something else, you know, I have a meeting or whatever. But for me, the hard thing is getting started. Like I have, a, sometimes I just, yeah, there's, especially if the thing I want, I need to do is something I don't want to do. There's so much inertia. So mm-hmm. I, once I get over that, I'm okay, but I don't, I want tips on how to make myself do things I don't want to do in the first place. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, one thing that I do also to make myself do things that I don't want to do is bribe myself with food. Oh, yeah. Like, I'll be like, you can go to this, like, coffee shop and eat this burrito if you <laughs> do this work. That's, yeah, that's smart. I, that's so funny. I cannot do that. I, I can't get the level of, like, split consciousness necessary to do that. And I actually, I, I, I like, had a, a lengthy back and forth with a therapist a few years ago about this because we were sort of talking about, you know, this way of like doing self-control by offering yourself rewards and I was like I was like it just doesn't work because I know it's just me it's the same the same person <laughs> I can saying, eat the burrito <laughs> yeah. yeah the same person saying you can't do this is the person <laughs> saying you can do this like there's not two people and and he was like he was like of course you can do it I was like no I can't and so I I have never been able to to because I just like I and it's I don't have like I it's just like I the the conch, my two minds collapse together and and they don't work anymore um so that I mean a lot of people do that Alexa I think I think that's a very common strategy it's just mm. funny that I couldn't yeah. that is it's really it. really hard for me to imagine not being able to do that <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so one thing that I I do have and I I don't use it as much as I should but I I have an app on my computer it's a Mac app but there's PC versions as well called self control. Yeah, right. And you can um, uh, you can list basically URLs and and it'll block them f- and you tell it how much time every time you activate it. And uh, um, and so I'll I, when I was doing the Pomodoro thing, I was actually doing this alongside the Pomodoro. So I'd start a twenty five minute Pomodoro. And then I would start self-control for 15 minutes because it didn't matter. Once I got into the thing, like it was no longer a distraction. But it's that getting started where it's like I could get started or I could go check Twitter. I could Mm -hmm. get started or I could go look at my email. Um, And so just setting it for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then if I need a break later on, you know, after I've gotten the momentum started, then it's truly a break that I'll come back from and not a like procrastination technique. I think mm-hmm. this is why I need like at least three hour chunks to do real work is because if it's like a one hour <laughs> chunk, I could be like, I could actually read Twitter for an hour. That's plausible. But if it's a three hour mm-hmm. chunk, I'm like, am I really just going to like read Twitter and pet my dog for three hours? No, I, I yeah. have to do something yeah. real. Yeah, right. Cool. Should we cool. end there? Sure. Um, oh, and, you know, listening to podcasts is extremely productive. Um, it helps you get things done, and so your number one priority. Definitely tune back in. Put aside time in the morning to listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, I, I'm, I'm like having the suddenly real, sudden realization that like what we just did was somebody's procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you have that awkward like 35 minutes between meetings, just listen to one of our. Part Listen of to episode. a blackout. <laughs> what else are you going to do in 35 minutes? Nothing. Yeah. You'll get nothing done. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, whether you were uh, using us to procrastinate or on your well-earned and deserved leisure time. Um, and uh, this has been The Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.